Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. I'm your host, Deb Philman. And I am very lucky this evening. I'm joined by two very smart, very wonderful women. I've got Adrian from Shio Sophia, and I've got Lisa Logan from Utah Parents United and Parents of Patriots with me. And we are going to present some pretty crazy stuff to you tonight. So, um, you know, fasten your seatbelts. Before I get started with that, if this is your first time to the channel, please consider subscribing. It really does help me get the word out to more parents, more taxpayers, more patriots, more people who are interested in education in America. And if you would please go ahead and hit the like button right now and share this video out to other people you might know who'd be interested in learning specifically more about social emotional learning, otherwise known as SEL. It is a hot topic right now in American education. You, you may have heard of it. You definitely have it in your kids' schools if you have kids who are school age. And we're going to be going over a paper this evening entitled, I'll read the title, Psychodata, Disassembling the Psychological, Economic, and Statistical Infrastructure of Social Emotional Learning. Lots of big words. Sounds really fancy. But uh, what it will do is help you understand the end game, what I call the end game. In other words, why? Why, why, they want it? why do the public schools suddenly want to know all the ins and outs of how our kids feel about everything and how they think about everything that is their soft skills, what kind of personality they have, what they like, what they don't like, what makes them upset and sad and all that. Why do they need that? What, what are they going to do with all that data? Because they're collecting mountains of it from 18 months on and storing it for a very long time. But, but, but why? Well, this paper lays it out pretty well. And I've invited Adrian here to talk to us about it because Adrian's a research scientist. So she's really good at dissecting this kind of stuff. While this is an article more so than a, a research study per se, it is analyzing a lot of other things. So she's great at dissecting that. And Lisa is the person who gave us the paper. She brought this to our attention and has been pouring over it and looking into it for a long time. So I've invited them here to talk about it. So welcome to the two of you. Thank you for being here. And I know that Adrian's prepared an outline for us. So I'm going to turn it over. <laughs> well, thank you for having me back, Deb. It's, it's a pleasure as always. Um, yeah, Deb, forwarded the, me this article from Lisa and asked me to read it through and it's just like it's hands down one of the creepiest articles I have ever read um at the same time it's really really rare when when an article uh does a job of <laughs> laying out all the players in something for you and how it's arranged because what they mean by the infrastructure is not you know roads or bridges or anything like that it's all the interconnected players and how things are being pushed forward and all this other kind of stuff so you've done a bunch of different lives this week on sel so this is not necessarily about the crazy things they're asking but the infrastructure pushing all the stuff that's being asked and the desire desire to ask all this stuff and um kind of sort of hints at why or maybe why um i'm always hesitant to just go off of one paper and say this is exactly why but um, it's kind of overwhelming the amount of hints toward the reason why they would be wanting all this stuff in this article. And just right. like, when I wrote it all out in 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 my notes here, it's just like, oh wow, there's that many references to that. So I guess <laughs> there's three main points. I think a lot of us think SEL is just about psychology or behavior. Um, it's not. 
that's that's one point to make in in this that there's a good discussion of it here and we'll get into that so don't forget it's not just about psychology and behavior it's also about economics which is uh, immediately concerning <laughs> when you're trying to tangle all that together there's a heck of a tangled web of actors that is pushing this particular madness and kind of breaks down into six different groups and making bank off of it because they're making lots of money off of it at this point. And Deb's already hinted at that and Lisa's already hinted at that and finding that out. And the last point and probably what makes it the creepiest thing is what we can see is that there seems to be a very creepy overarching desire to manipulate the person threatened to particular ends um, as described by this particular article. Um, many times over. So those are kind of three points you want to hit today just to make sure everybody gets that. And then, <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, let's see, where do we start with all this kind of stuff? Um, do you want me to just share the article, Deb, or do you want to yeah. talk through it? I think but just share it and go through it. Um, before we do, Lisa, did you have something to say about your first impressions of it? Because I know you're the one that brought it to our attention in the first place. Do you sort of feel the same way as Adrian as far as, you know, wow, this, I didn't realize economics had to do, it had to do with economics. I didn't realize, um, you know, what was your take initially? Well, I wasn't surprised actually, Deb and Adrian. I, I feel like uh, I, <laughs> I've already done so much research into this and understand how really social emotional learning, if you look at it and the way that even Castle is interpreting it through these like collaborating states initiatives is it's all laying a framework to build social emotional skills for us, for our children to serve the global workforce. I just was shocked that they were so clear about it in this article. It's like, literally, we're gonna screw with your mind. And uh, it's all because we, we have this particular future laid out for you that we've already planned. Um, right. and really how just, nice of them to plan our future <laughs> exactly and then have that saves me that trouble they're, these are most of the organizations involved and this is why they're doing it and like uh, adrian was saying that the infrastructure that's set up it's kind of like a um self-fulfilling prophecy right they they set everything up to to benefit themselves it's, it's very interesting in that regard and i can't wait to have um her analysis of it yeah, yeah, definitely. And you guys have definitely done more in SEL than I have. So I, <laughs> I, I would defer to some of your expertise on, 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 on all of that, too. But, but, we've, but as you pointed out, we've looked at it from the classroom side, mostly. And we've looked at it in terms of what questions are asking our kids and the claims they're making and the, the, these premises they have that this is so necessary for their academic achievement. And yet, it's been going on for decades and we're like, I I'm not seeing the achievement. I'm not, I'm well, not seeing that. Yeah. And admittedly one of the ways they're couching it. So Lisa's point is, is the idea that there's going to be a lot of computerization or uh, mechanization of different jobs and careers that weren't in the past. And those aren't going to be available for people to work in going, going into the future in the next 20, 50, hundred years. So there is that, that, that is a legit and real concern that exists, but that doesn't necessarily justify the manipulation of kids' personalities for all this. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not, um, it's not true. Okay. So, I mean, how, how do I put this? Like, yes, lots of things will be automated and computerized, but just as, you know, people once said, 
oh, what are we going to do about the buggy whip makers and the buggy drivers and the people who tend to our horses and the smithies and the, but you know, once we have the car, what happens is you have a bunch of higher order skill jobs that have tended as progress as, you know, as technological progress has advanced, you have higher order hard skill jobs that have come to exist because of the new technology. So the claim that, that I see is not just in this paper, but in general, that somehow what's going to be needed from everybody are soft skills. That's for a service-based economy. And a service-based economy is actually backward. You know, like that's, we have one largely, but the more technological we get, the more we're going to need people to maintain the technology, to understand the technology, to ethically analyze how to use the technology so the technology doesn't take over our lives and we cease to be humans. Oh, wait, did I say that? Anyway, um, so don't believe the lie that because things will be automated, we all have to have all these soft skills. Are, this, are the machines going to run themselves? Are the machines going to make better, stronger, faster machines? Are they, you know, that's, and it's also really not as near as they claim. Kind of like the claim that, you know, fossil fuel, if you ask people what percentage of our energy worldwide is produced by coal and natural gas, people, because of all the pr promotion of, you know, new ideas like, you know, wind and solar, We'll usually think it's, you know, closer to 50% or something. It's still 83%. Mm -hmm. So in other words, just because you hear about a thing so often doesn't mean it's become reality yet. So yes, we're hearing about automation, automation, automation. But I bet you the percentage of things that used to be done by humans that have been fully automated is smaller than you think. And so the idea that we would take these millions upon millions, hundreds of millions really of students and, tell, and decide that they don't need to know how to do anything or have hard skills. And a teeny tiny percentage of people need that is preparing for a future that is not reality. And, and it may not be reality if people continue to not know how to read. You know, that high tech stuff takes smart people. It does. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's just... Um... I don't, I don't disagree with the point, Deb. I'm just more making the comment that that's what they're couching this as. Oh, no, I know. They're saying, and then, of course, people get, like, all nervous. Like, oh, I want my kid to be prepared. Exactly. It's a, it is a way to freak, freak out parents. That, oh, yeah, I know. You're, you're going to have no. You're gonna, your kid's not going to have a job in the future if they don't learn this. Don't you want your kid to have a job in the future, right? It's like, you don't know what jobs are exactly going to exist in the future. You can't possibly determine all that up front. We can try amongst the, like, Long, your longtime viewers would know this. I mean, professionally, I work in climate science at this point. <laughs> bringing up the fossil fuel things is not unknown to me. But it's like one of the biggest sources of uncertainty in our projections of climate is people, <laughs> for crying out loud, in terms of what we're going to do in the future. It's not the science of climate. So totally other oh, oh, whole other tangent. Sorry about that. But no, but it's a good point. And I'm glad you brought that up because it really does just reinforce the idea that a lot of things that we hear about or, or we're led to believe, we believe because we've heard them frequently. We've heard them so many times that they take on a reality that doesn't necessarily comport with reality, reality. Right. Right. Well, and then, and then there's the other point is like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? If they envision this reality, set everything up so that it becomes that way. It's like, 
are we really saying, are we projecting into the future saying it's going to be that way? Are we deciding it's going to be that way and then working backwards, right? And, and getting everybody to have those skills so then we have to have machines doing everything. So there's that question too. Exactly. So let's see here. Um, so on the first point, um, it's not just about psychology and behavior, though that's certainly a big component with this. It's about, oh, and just a point to make, they're pushing all this knowing that everything is widely contested. Just to make the point there. Everything is widely contested, but they're pushing it anyway. FYI. Just for yeah, it's it like, you know, people don't like this, but we're doing it. It's just like, okay. Um, but yeah, the, the point is not just that it's behavior or psychology, what have you. And this whole section talks about it. And it is actually the first part of the whole infrastructure is the expertise. Um, of course, define what the heck you mean by an expert is one of the things you come up with. But look what we got. What do we have here? <laughs> ah! Ooh, surprise guest. We have a surprise guest. We have James Lindsay. Thank you for joining hey, us. Y'all. We've, we've hey, just James. gotten started. We've just yeah. gotten started. All we've basically accomplished is letting people know that SEL is not just about psychology. It's about economics. And this is a creepy paper. And they're asserting things that are not necessarily true. Like, oh, yes, everything will be automated in the future. And Lisa made the point, well, is which came first, the chicken or the egg? Are you wishing this into being or is this an accurate reflection of reality as it is? So that's where we are. Well, seeing as I was actually writing something, I'm trying to prepare for this workshop I have coming up in Phoenix about the theology of Marxism. So I was writing about the Hegelian dialectic to kind of get my notes together, my thoughts together. And um, willing something into being that way is pretty much exactly the MO. So... Uh, I would expect that willing this into being is a thing. I mean, you see this in the, and I don't know if you guys have mentioned this or will mention this at all, but the World Economic Forum has put out at least three white papers about the future of education, one in 2015, one in 16, and the most recent one, which is super weird, in 19. They're kind of huge repetitions of one another. If you've paid any attention to the World Economic Forum, you'll notice that there's virtually no substance, but a lot of fluff and saying the same thing which is a lot of kind of aspirational stuff with one scary paragraph somewhere in the middle of it, no matter what it is. Like all of Klaus Schwab's books are the same book. They, I mean, they really just are. But these white papers are too. And they have all this stuff like, oh yeah, the reason we need social emotional learning is because the economy of the future is going to require social and emotional skills more than it's going to require any other kind of skill. You can't teach, say, children how to... Um, do math or read or whatever or code because you can't even predict which kinds of skills they'll need the the jobs of the future probably will require skills that don't even exist yet so let's focus on coping and adapting and developing social skills to get along in a collective harmony instead and that's another example where they're willing into being a new economy they're trying to create an entire new economic model and then they're trying to create simultaneously the justification to fill it with a bunch of weirdos that they've miseducated who are basically no good for anything else. But this is just creating a basically a party apparatus. But that doesn't even touch on the that the World Economic Forum, weirdly enough, doesn't touch upon the economic aspects. They try to say that social emotional learning is the key tool to create the learner of the future or the learner of today for the jobs of tomorrow, for the job of the future that doesn't exist yet. And it's necessary to basically just do this crap 
with kids instead of teach them anything. Like you would think that teaching people to learn would make them adaptable to new circumstances, but instead it's whatever this garbage is because they actually have ulterior motives. Uh, I think that this paper, I didn't read all of this paper yet. I read about a third of it and was just kind of like wide eyed um, <laughs> through all the parts that I read. And uh, you know, it just kind of makes that same point. It's just that this thing is, uh, there is an ulterior motive here to social emotional learning or a number of them. And none of them are something anybody should be comfortable with, with their kids. Exactly. You, no, you, you, the purpose of this is to just create a hive mind. They want kids who all think about the world in the same way. Right. Yeah. And so they want to, like, for example, get to know your kid through the data mining, surveying processes, through the observation processes, through the eye tracking, the facial tracking, the emotion recognition uh, tracking that's all in the World Economic Forum white papers, through wearable tech that's monitoring their heart rate, their emotional state, all of these things while they're engaged in the learning process. They want to get to know your kid so well that they can propagandize your kid perfectly and so that they can market to your kid perfectly because they're in collusion between the governments who want to control you and the corporations who want to sell to you. And so the goal is to have a perfect profile of your child so that the algorithm in their device connected through their digital ID will completely brainwash them to think exactly the way whichever aspect of the regime, corporate or political, wants them to think about everything all the time while you've just spent 20 years conditioning them to be told how to think and feel about everything they've encountered according to right and wrong answers. It's really the biggest nightmare brainwashing scenario ever. I mean, luckily it'll fail because humans are too complex for this, but unfortunately they're going to screw up generations of children and the entire world in the process of trying to put it out. Yeah, exactly. And that's the live right there. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's all of it. No. Um, I think no, because we didn't even talk about Freire yet and how Freire. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'll be good to read some of these quotes, or maybe, or where, where, you know, you've got some stuff in there, Adrian, that you wanted oh, to point yeah. to no, specifically. I've got a lot in there. And yeah, I, wa I wanted to make the point because I, I think a lot of people think of SEL as just being a thing for psychologists, but it really was drawn off a combination of psychology and econ economics at the same time. Um, and in particular, I had it down here. Um, they actually do a great favor to everybody in highlighting who the two prime people sort of foundational in all of SEL, if you will, in terms of the expertise they're in. And one of them is the economist James Heckman, who came up with the whole uh, Heckman equation, justifying policy intervention in education as a form of human capital investment. The idea being if you have certain behavioral traits or personality traits, you're prone to making better types of socioeconomic decisions and end up with a better socioeconomic outcomes. So who defines what is better, right, is the, is the question with that. But that's not purely a psychological thing. That's an economics thing, too, also. What decisions do you end up making? That got paired with a psychologist and, of course, a whole other hybrid dimension called behavioral economics, which goes about the question of... Um, you don't necessarily just make your economic decisions based upon reason and rationality and what have you. Sometimes you make your irrational decisions also economically speaking. So you've always, all of us have done that occasional just random sp spending splurge at the store and regretted it later. Um, those kinds of things are what they get into with behavioral economics. But Heckman in particular is the one who really got this started in arguing that socio 
perseverance, attention, motivation, self-confidence are all important determinants of socioeconomic success and contribute to the performance in society at large, even help determine scores on tests that are used to monitor cognitive achievement. So he's kind of your basics with the economics. And so that's where the economics side of SEL is based from, is from uh, the original work of Heckman and paired with the psychology work of Angela Duckworth, who became the psychologist after um, going after the, yes, so, yeah, the two of them together formed a collaboration to integrate social science genetics with psychological, economic, and social traits and outcomes, which is exploring innovative real-time measurement of cognition, personality, and behavior, such as effective computing for emotional detection, digital psychometrics for identifying psychological states, and sociogenomic personality assessment. Um, incidentally, with multi-million dollars from the John Templeton Foundation to do that. So <laughs> there's lots of money involved in this. But the two of them together, and psychologists and economic, econ, econ, economists together, pardon, pardon me. I'm tongue-tied because we have a star guest here. Um, <laughs> involved. And, and that's where it gets really, really creepy. And you might have noticed the other thing I'm highlighting here at the end, um, talking about the whole idea of nudging decision-making in health and education. They want to nudge you in particular ways. They just don't want to force you. They want to nudge you behavior-wise to get to behave a particular way is the kind of goal here. So that's, that's the thing to take with the expertise and then pair it up also with the fact that all the computing that we have now, of course, gives the opportunity for huge amounts of data mining. So hence all those lovely surveys, right? Then you can do all the data mining that you want in the world to learn everything there is to know about your about the kids in particular, and then how could you manipulate them off of that? That's the creepy part of this to me. But uh, it also seems once again, like they've taken something where we have a statistical correlation, right? They talk about the traits and the association with success, whatever, and they're deciding it's causal. And then they're flipping it around and trying to figure out how can they inculcate, how can they get these traits into people like we start early enough, we can get them in there or the ones that we want, not the ones we don't want. And then we can nudge them to make certain decisions with those traits. But they're, they're, they're starting with that false premise that I can take a correlation and then I can, you know, decide, I can just decide that if I can figure out how to get those traits into somebody that I can make it a causal factor in their decision-making. And that's, that's a few leaps um, and I see that happening with SEL all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to do you know, screenings because this is correlated with that. Okay, super. But now you're taking in so much data on everyone that the signal is lost in all the noise. Whatever signal might have been there, you're going to now create signal. I think that's what James is talking about is they're willing it into, it's like, let's create meaning out of all this data to mean what we want it to mean. And look, it works for our thing that we wanted when, there's no evidence whatsoever that it does. There's well, none. You know who I think of when I see this? Herbert Marcuse, which is maybe not the name. You maybe thought, oh, he's going to say Freire because the <laughs> interface is Freire, and that's exactly where they dump this right. in education, and that's exactly how they make it work to do what they're trying to do. But no, what I, I think back to Essay on Liberation from 1969 where um, Herbert Marcuse for the people listening who don't follow like literally everything I say, which is Marcuse every eight minutes um, <laughs> because we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. I just put out a new discourses bullet today. We live in Herbert Marcuse's world. Um, 
Herbert Marcuse was the leading neo-Marxist philosopher of the 1950s, 60s, and early 1970s. Uh, huge influence. And like I said, we live in the world created in his essays that he wrote primarily in the 60s and uh, books. And the 69 essay, the essay on liberation, begins with a chapter or a section, depending on how you want to break it down. When I say essay on liberation, it's like in standard print, it's like 170 pages. So it's a very long essay. If you want to call them chapters, do what you want. Um, the first one is called A Biological Foundation for Socialism. And what he explains is that capitalism has been very successful uh, and has actually stabilized the working class. And so one of the thing, and, and just made them conservatives, and so stabilized society also and generally made our society a center-right society. And so what you actually have to do if you want to have socialism, which is, of course, being a Marxist, his objective, is that you have to figure out how to take those things that have become second nature in people and replace them with a different morality. He says you have to introject a new sensibility about the world into people by giving them new values and forcing them or creating conditions in which they don't know how to live outside of those new values. And when I see this and I see social emotional learning, I see the introjection of a new moral system by which they believe they can create the necessary conditions for a socialist populace. In other words, they're going to use the children to remake man because they're not going to succeed remaking adults very well by introjecting a new uh, moral and value system into them until they don't know how to live without it. They don't know how to live without somebody basically holding their hands to the right answers to social and emotional questions. They don't know how anything works. And so they become kind of dependent upon the, the experts who do. And so we're going to prioritize now social and emotional skills to develop emotional literacy so that they can have the jobs of the future where the elite technocrats are going to actually do all the heavy lifting and they just kind of answer to it. And I see that interjection of the new morality where all of the all of the social and emotional values that they're trying to interject or inculcate into this, the kids through this program, which they data mine to find out what do they need? Who needs what? How does it work for each kid? And then they, the interface will be Freire, and they use that to create an education program to each individual context through the AI that can machine learn off of their psycho profiles or whatever, uh, psycho data profiles, to figure out the best way to, whether it's indoctrinate, educate, brainwash, thought reform, whatever you want to use these kids. And the goal is to create an entire socialist basis that changes their fundamental levels of second nature and vital needs as, as Marcuse labels them so that they grow up in the world order that the Marcusean neo-Marxists who are trying to take over everything want them to grow up in and to believe and to feel. It's like ingest, injecting a new religion, an entirely new kind of social fabric into the next generation and using a lot of data mining in order to do it. And hey, with the economic side, if we can make more money, but more importantly for these people, it's not actually about getting rich. It's about sustainability. Um, sustainability is a thing Marcuse rails on in One Dimensional Man over and over and over again, uh, even to the point where at the end of the book, he's saying, of course, a sustainable world order will require reduction in the future population. As you're writing that in 1964, when the population was 3.9 million or billion, sorry. Um, what you're actually seeing though, as you're, as you're seeing this attempt to get this sustainable situation where you don't have anybody doing anything random. It's not that your kids are necessarily going to be trained to behave just as the regime wants. The main thing the regime wants them to, to behave as is utterly predictable socioeconomic units. They never do anything radical. They never think anything radical. They never think anything new. They never 
purchase. They never go on that, that spending spree that you just mentioned impulsively. They do everything utterly predictable. They just become machines in the sustainable future regime. And that's ultimately the new morality that creates the socialism that, that literally Marcuse calls as the, the biological foundation for socialism that's been interjected at the level of the, the vital needs and uh, uh, you know mor level of, of, of morality of the, the, the next generation. And that's really the tar, that's what I see when I see social emotional learning and I see papers like this exposing kind of it's big picture. And I read the white papers from the World Economic Forum saying why they want this. And then I think about kind of the big picture that I already know all this rests within when I see these kinds of players pushing these kinds of ideas. And this is a nightmare. stops though. They do that, progress stops. What's that? Not just progress will stop. Oh, yeah. Well, the, in fact, Marcuse uh, notes that. He says we actually have to get used to having less, less plastic, fewer gadgets, less stuff. Um, we actually need to lower our overall standard and quality of living so that we can have a completely sustainable and predictable future that works in, in a socialist circumstance. He says basically in that essay that you, he's comparing the great socialist states, which would be mostly at that time the USSR, versus a great capitalist state, which would primarily be the United States or Western Europe to a degree. He's comparing these two things and he's saying, well, the Soviet states have the right ideology, they have the right mentality, but they can't get their production levels up. They can't make enough stuff. And if they ever solve that problem, then we're off to the races. The capitalist societies, on the other hand, don't just make enough stuff. They make too much stuff. It's unsustainable. And that's where the sustainability aspect comes in. It's going to burn itself out and collapse. He says capitalism becomes less and less logical as it goes. What you end up with is people making products that for a need that doesn't exist. Like you don't need, say, I don't know, a sweater for your dog or like a koozie for your beer can that has like a pig on it or you don't need kind of like super specialist goods. But as capitalism progresses, he says it gets more and more irrational and people start trying to produce products to fulfill a need that doesn't even exist just because people have the money. They have the, the, the leisure to be able to do this. So you end up with this completely nonsense economy that's producing stuff nobody needs. And this is unsustainable. It's going to destroy the planet and it's going to destroy humanity. And it's going to make everybody lose their souls. So he says that the correct answer is figuring out how to get the production level either up in Soviet states, which doesn't appear to be tractable, or to interject a new morality into capitalist states that bring, primes them for socialism while becoming content with having less. And right. so you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You'll live in the metaverse. You'll have a 500 square foot pod, but you'll go on virtual vacations every day. You'll plug into your Neuralink and you'll be able to experience winning the Super Bowl, although you've never touched a football in your life, et cetera. This is the future the liberals want, the leftists want. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and you see all over social emotional learning, the, the word collective. Really what they're trying to do is get students to think about, well, how can I serve the needs of the collective and have that be more important than their needs as an individual, right? So we're not educating kids so that they can go out and do what they want to do in the world. We're educating them to benefit society as a part of the collective. Yeah, I'm not going to bang the drum again, but that's what Marcuse is pointing out, too, is that we really need to have that socialist mentality rather than having this individualistic mentality that wants more and does its own thing, et cetera. Hey, Paul. Hey, James. Paul, Hi. Rossian. And we have, now we have a, a teacher joining us. I just wanted to say one thing that is slightly heartening. Um, they do such a poor job 
of teaching everything in our schools that I don't really feel like they'll be successful. But as you pointed out earlier, James, the problem is that in doing this, they're damaging the kids in myriad ways otherwise. So they, I don't anticipate they will successfully achieve this completely insane, brave new world, wrinkle in time, you know, Kamazot's dream of theirs where people bounce the ball exactly the same way or do whatever it is they're going to do predictably. I don't think they can possibly achieve that. Um, but what they, what we're going to get that nobody's even thought about is something that could be far worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could be looking at, we could be looking at a more of a, like a Mad Max kind of a scenario. You know, we could be looking at something completely different because when, when you try to control that many people, and you try to reduce chaos that much, then when reality hits and it blows up, it's that much bigger a blow up. Well, that and yeah, and then pile on the fact that you're going to have these kids who've been gone through no education and lots of brainwashing for their entire formative years. Some of that involves developmental milestones that you're not going to get back. Like you are not going to teach people successfully to fill in the gaps on some of the stuff later because that ship will have just sailed in terms of how brain development works. And neuroplasticity is a thing, but it changes radically between 20 and 25. And after 25, it's just kind of, it's still there, but it's a very, very different entity. And so you're going to enter into a situation in which reality is going to hit hard up against this fantasy land that they're trying to portray and and interject into everybody. And you're going to have basically one to three lost generations of complete incompetence who don't know how to do anything except kind of have emotional freakouts over the fact that everything's falling apart. I mean, we're already dealing with a generation. We already had that argument a couple of times through COVID and whatever else where it was, you know, the supply chain disruption in particular, it was, you know, I remember having arguments and seeing on social media, lots of people having arguments with people saying, you know, well, where do you think you're going to get food? if everything kind of goes really south and people were literally arguing back at the grocery store, well, how do you think the food is going to get to the grocery store? And then the answer was, it's just there. And so that's a complete lot like breakdown of, of a conceptual understanding of reality and B problem solving. um, That's going to confront multiple generations of whacked out kids who are going to run into reality with zero of the necessary tools to cope with it. Um, that's not a good, re- like, I, I agree with you. I don't think they're going to succeed um, short of like literally tying people down and brain implanting everybody. But I do think that they're going to create a situation in which we're going to have bigger problems and we know how to solve. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and to that end, it's like the, the economics and psychology relationship with SEL is, about the idea of, you know, if we could figure out the relationship between behavioral traits and socioeconomic outcomes, then, oh, maybe we can intervene to push kids in the behavioral traits that, that we want to get the socioeconomic outcomes that we deem to be good. And that's not possible without the data from the surveys to be able to make those relationships to begin with. And then comes the data analytics. And I went to this page in particular because it brings up some of the points that James was mentioning in particular, this kind of last thing at the end here, we're talking about altering problematic behaviors in kids and people rather than working on anything with the underlying socioeconomic and political and institutional structures. And that kind of speaks to what James was saying about the, um, about the whole idea of let's introduce a little bit of socialism into the capitalist countries kind of, kind of deal. So that's 
kind of the three things with expertise that you see here, psychologists, economists, and data mining expertise with the tech there, which forms that first cog in the infrastructure that is SEL at this point. And like I said, this article is great for the fact that it did us a favor and laid out a whole bunch of the actors that are associated with SEL. And James got to the end there that, yeah, the World Economic Forum is one of them that is quite one of these actors pushing this nonsense um, or pushing this mess. It's going to mess with a heck of a lot of kids and screw a lot of things over in the interim before it falls apart. But... <laughs> Who are I the point out, just to reiterate, that once again, people ask me all the time, what is the end goal? What is the end goal? What is the end goal? The end goal is sustainability under their definition, which means complete predictability of the entire economy. They want the entire thing. No boom and bust cycles, no bull markets or bear markets, just one kind of steady growing market that enriches the people that they want it to enrich. That kind of just cruises along at completely predictable, steady uh, growth rates, they call it a circular economy, as a matter of fact. So it will grow, progress will probably stop, but we'll just keep recycling what there is up into the top and nobody else will have anything. And the goal, though, is completely predictable economy, which means completely predictable people, which means completely predictable children. And so the conditioning here is going to be to be able to figure out to get in people's heads and completely predict them. Now, one of the ways I mentioned the, the, um, Interjection of morality. One of the points I should have raised then that I didn't, and I kind of rushing and core dumping on you because I'm not entirely sure how long I can stick around. But um, one of the other points, of course, is that you're building a a social credit profile for children uh, by doing these surveys, these profiles. What do your parents do? Are you a kulak? <laughs> you know, basically, are you your parents rich landlords? You know, uh, oh, that's a bad identity. That's a bad for your social credit. You're building up this kind of social credit profile. But the social credit system becomes an even stronger, that's your like adult re reinforcement program so that the kids get SEL and get uh, thought reformed into the new system. And then the social credit system locks adults into it virtually permanently. And so the degree of a social credit profile that they could make of us as adults is pretty good, but rather limited. But if they've been data mining down to the levels of like wearable tech, being kind of the future direction of SEL, using wearable tech to intervene in kids' emotions before they even know they're having them. Um, you're talking the capacity for some really intricate, you know, social credit things, like something comes up on the screen or whatever in the classroom or the teacher says something, the kid has an emotional reaction, the wearable device, the ring they're wearing, that measures their heart rate and perspiration or whatever else, alerts that there was a negative emotional reaction to the thing that was said and your social credit score gets docked. And so now, you know, you're doing lines or whatever, you're going into some kind of restorative justice bullshit program instead of going out to recess today, or instead of being able to eat a nice lunch, you have some kind of punitive thing or whatever else. Um, the, the, this is the kind of the utter control that they want to create perfectly predictable citizens so that they have perfectly predictable economies and also no revolutions. <laughs> right, which is why they have to set the standards around ESGs, really. I mean, because then they can say, well, the companies have to operate like this, the people you hire have to behave and think like this, and then they can, can control the whole enchilada. And it's also why they have to take our guns. <laughs> well, it's good. like uh, our friend Mark Owsley says, uh, Unwokable, he says, you know, they don't need your guns if they get your children. Mm -hmm. and right. you have SEL. Yeah. 
Right. They'll, they'll, your kids will go steal your guns and turn them in for an ice cream cone. 100%. They're already go trying to, jail. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. little bit of Mao thrown in, you know. little Mao. We still didn't talk about Freire, but. Because <laughs> I just read this SEL paper yesterday or the day before, I guess, for a podcast. And I was like, it never actually makes any argument. It's just like, obviously, just this like lazy repackaging of how you can use SEL to create a Freirean framework. But it never says those words. It's just that's really obviously what it is. It's kind of one of the dumbest things I've ever read in my life. Um, but now it's super clear to me how they're using SEL to create the Freirean education landscape right. as a result. Right. Uh, so we'll get to that at some point, I guess. It's the interface, though. <laughs> it, it, yeah, that is uh, very, very true. Um, so besides um, the players that you've mentioned so far, Adrian, who else we got? We had Heckman and Duckworth on the. Heckman on the and Duckworth, you have the expertise, right? That tells you that tells you theoretically how you can do this with the data, theoretically and economics and all this yeah. other kind of stuff, and justify the intervention and justify the interventions to get to you know appropriate socioeconomic outcomes with kids and all these kinds of things. So the malleability of children here is what you get really manipulated, um, and that's the, what made this article so creepy to me was the amount. <clears throat> excuse me, of desire to manipulate, but the experts only form like one rung of the whole infrastructure that is right now. Um, the next one down is, of course, all the think tanks and a bunch of them you guys already know about, you've already talked about, and you're familiar on the channel, on Deb's channel. I mean, Castle being one of them. These are basically, the way they describe it, and I think it makes sense in, in the sense of what they want to try and promote and propagandize SEL as being a good thing. Um, here is these are the folks that do all the synthesizing of that expertise to get it out to the schools so that the schools can make use of it and push all this stuff on the kids. So these are in between, but they also make a hell of a lot of money off of it at the same time, <laughs> as Deb and others have pointed out. They call um, themselves for-profit philanthropies. Yep. Yep. Um, but here's actually where you can see it. So like one of the folks on Castle's advisory board is none other than Angela Duckworth, um, who actually um, gets also funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and the whole works in there that want this stuff have a perfectly predictable society, right? Um, here by manipulating your kids. Um, Castle's certainly not the only one. Um, I think one of the other ones down here, yeah, the Aspen Institute, which also gets money from the Gates Foundation and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, um, re-envision what constitutes success in schools. So re-envision everything. And of course, we all, we all love that particular language. And transformation. Don't and transformation. That. Yeah, it's transformative SEL being the being the prime one now. With that with that means whole. communism. Yes, it is. <laughs> that TR word means communism. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that. I'm not yes. going to interrupt We're further. Fundamentally transform, said Barack Obama. Exactly. Um but there's a lot of these different, I mean, I don't think the author here covers all of those different philanthropies that are pushing this stuff because you're live with Anne before. You had however many hundreds of logos at one point. Yeah. Different well, those are the tech ed companies, but there's also Devereaux and, you know, all these. So, yeah, there's mm -hmm. many, many of these. So, but this, that's actually, that's actually a whole separate arm in the infrastructure is just the tech commercialization of SEL to get it into right. schools better. That was the other, one of the other arms. Um, a note of interest, and I don't know if this is true, so you guys have to tell me, one of them pushing uh, character virtue development is how the John Templeton Foundation calls it, but it's considered to be a conservative group. 
So I don't, I, I don't know with that one. Um, if you're counting on a conservative, I wouldn't program. doubt it. If somebody went to them and said, "Oh, we're doing character education. Can you give us a big grant because we're gonna, you know, get inside the kids' heads and figure out how to make them better people?" They might write a check. I mean, they lied to everybody else. Why not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the uh, it's a neoconservative. I'll just point that out. Which that's yeah. conservative. <laughs> Neoconservatives yeah. are so. All these Marxist people are left-wing Hegelians. Yes. The neocons are right-wing Hegelians. And so in some bigger sense, they're actually on the same team. Um, I have funny flashbacks every time I see the John Templeton Foundation because they used to fund all this weird stuff within because I was active in the atheism movement. And everybody kind of knows that now. And then they freak out because not everybody actually knows that. But uh, they used to fund the crap out of atheists who would be like really good to faith. Like, so it's just like they're just seeding contradictions and like whatever, wherever they go. There's just like they're throwing money at wherever they can seed a contradiction in there. Um, and since you mentioned, by the way, you were talking about uh, all these tech partnerships and these kind of the big all the money to be made. Uh, that's also mentioned, by the way, in the World Economic Forum white papers is the billions of dollars to be made by companies to start creating SEL tech and selling SEL tech and offering SEL tech. So the World Economic Forum in 2015 and 16 signaled, set up its big dollar sign Klaus Schwab bat signal to all the big corporations. There's going to be a gold mine ahead of you if you start creating technology and interfaces and so on for these social emotional learning products, because basically this is a thing we're going to force into existence in the world. And so there's going to be a ton of money and we're going to incentivize that, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, even the world economic forum I, at that time, even in 16, they were saying that there were, I think billions of dollars behind it uh, at the level of industry. So just with kind of nothing new to buy and with us having less and fewer people and all that, where's all the billions of dollars going to come from? There's nothing to invest in. There's nobody doing anything new and there's no growth. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that smart. Other than mining asteroids, I have no, no idea No, but I'm just saying, like, I'm not from. that smart. I'm not an economist. I'm not people. Like, if I can, if I'm just like a mom and I come up with that question, why are all these supposed experts over Davos or whatever, why isn't anyone going, I, 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 I have a question. <laughs> Like, what? Well, I mean, they're promoting a thing called a circular economy. And so they seem apparently to have figured out how to escape the second law of thermodynamics um, and create a perpetual economic, uh, what's it, perpetual motion machine of economics. I have no idea the answer to that question. I don't even know what they think. I've read all of Klaus's books. I don't have the slightest idea. He just always talks about the economy of the future. Never actually says how any of it's going to work, but that's why I did a podcast called Communism I feel like Doesn't we're Know getting How. Just played. It's like you know that movie Being There and Peter Sellers. Like it's probably what's actually happening. They're probably just lying and want to create a global serfdom where their uh, wealth and status can't be challenged by an uppity middle class, and then they're trying to say it's all this great stuff for the future. Blah blah blah. It I wouldn't, feels a I wouldn't lot more likely. It feels a lot more likely they're just pillagers. Yeah, and it, it makes it, a lot it, more sense. It really does because it, there's no way anything else they can't possibly believe this. I like I said, I'm just an average person, and I'm like, you you smoke and crack, <laughs> like that's not gonna happen. So the only thing logical is that they think we're all gonna go. Oh, there's the smart people in the suits, and you know they must know something we don't know, and and they don't understand us. 
I mean, it's almost like if they've been listening to academics for too long, they might believe that crap because academics kind of think that way. It's like they wrote a paper in like 1974 and proved some little thing. And so now, you know, they've got entire models of the economy that look like Janet Yellen saying that we had no idea that this stuff was going to happen. There's shocks. We got surprised by shocks. You know, I listened to her and I've thought for the whole time that she's just this big liar. And for the first time listening to her talk about we got taken by surprise by all these shocks. I actually thought, no, wow, she's just stupid. It was no, the no, first it, time it I really... actually thought incompetence might be the thing behind it. No, they they've known about this for decades as a possibility. No, I I know. Paul, and and like is... there's a there's a great book I read called Lords of Easy Money, which which explains like the history of the Federal Reserve, the people who've been on the board, the doubters about uh, the kind of crazy stimulus that they're just printing. Um, and you know she was deeply involved in it from from that for decades. So yeah, it's all just crocodile tears. Um. But I, I think I think I think they're going to print. They're just going to man. I mean, the idea is like if you if you don't have separate banks, if all of your money's with the government, would they're going to manage it? They're going to remove excess liquidity from your account when necessary. They're going to pump in excess liquidity or extra liquidity when necessary. And there's not even going to be a need to have um, you know, the economy will be will be managed by some Federal Reserve entity to an even greater degree of control than than we're seeing now. Like where, whereas individual accounts will be managed um, as necessary. So, By so you get stimulus and trillions just, of dollars of debt. It was, yeah. Well, there, the debt, there is no debt. I mean, it, it's going to get so big that the, the debt itself is, is virtual. Too big um, to exist. Right. And so it'll just be, it'll be just a black bottomless hole that, you know, no one is ever going to account for it ever. That's, I think that's the way they think about it. Okay, um, <laughs> let's go with that. Uh, yeah, I don't know the answers past that either. <laughs> yeah, no that, that's that, that that one's too big for again. Yeah, it's way above my pay grade. Um, so then we get to the ESSA stuff. Now we get into our tax dollars, right? Yep, yep, yep. The other, yeah, the other kind of arm of everything is whatever investment mechanisms and so investment mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, how, how do you, how do you pay for this stuff, right? Where does the money come from? Um, I mean, one of the big ones is like Rand and Wallace have both estimated like $16 of $16 billion. It would be nice if it was just $16, but $16 billion of your taxpayer funding per year go, going to SEL and promoting SEL in particular. But um, what You're makes paying it- Paying for our own demise, basically. Exactly. Paying for your own demise. But ESSA is interesting because it's it's uh, evidence-based programming, promote SEL with ESSA, right? But one of the, the, the thing that struck me with this is this uh, social impact bonds kind of scheme to pay for the success and what have you. This is how such things as the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Castle and what have you can get in there and pay for it in schools with these social impact bonds that we're talking about. Um, it's not directly- they allow investment banks and wealthy philanthropies to invest in educational services and programs and collect public money mm-hmm. with additional interest as profits if they meet agreed outcome metrics. I'd love to get a look at those outcome metrics. <laughs> that looks like the biggest scam that I've seen in, you think? in a long time. Wow. It thinks of public-private partnership too, doesn't it? Yep. Mm. But that's that's the mechanism. That's the mechanism that lets all those philanthropies and banks and what have you get in there into the schools and start offering this stuff. And um, profit. And profit at the same time. <laughs> just as a note, everyone, there is this much evidence 
that SEL does <laughs> anything they say it does, never mind anything good. Yeah, the only evidence that they use to support SEL is a very flimsy meta-analysis done in 2011 when the model of SEL that was employed was a completely different model and is, in fact, the model that every paper about SEL now criticizes for being, and I quote, white and neoliberal. Uh, and so it's a literal, that was the, the topic of the podcast I recorded yesterday, is that it's a bait and switch because all the evidence that they present uses something that's based off of either a faith-based or more often a personal responsibility model of SEL that use targeted interventions, et cetera, that kind of evolved out of whatever original crackpot scheme it was in the very beginning. And the, even there, the evidence was really thin. And they did some really like probably bogus meta-analysis in 2011. That's a while ago. That's the one, by the way, that the World Economic Forum cites in right. all of its white papers. It's the one from 2011 where it was a completely different product. So there's literally no evidence whatsoever for the thing that they're actually implementing in schools. The thing that they had been implementing had what looked like standard woke cooked books, thin evidence, where they have kind of one study that kind of says what they say, and then they exaggerate what it says and wave the flag and implement it at $16 billion a year of federal money based on no evidence uh, of any uh, quality or credibility. And then they just changed the thing out from under that because, well, it's same name, basically. So same thing, basically. But but here's the thing. This is this is supposedly the said evidence that they're using, that there's an 11 to 1 cost benefit ratio of system of economic return here. It's not necessarily about the kids doing well in school or anything like that. That's cited in the uh, World Economic Forum 2016 white paper. Also, um, I didn't go investigate that particular study independently, right. but I bet you it is really a suspicious claim uh, being well, made there. I, I, I call it suspicious because it's it's funded by Warren Buffett, essentially. <laughs> oh, well. That's actually what's right down here. It's just like it, it goes on into it to say, okay, that cost-benefit report funded with to the tune of, well, by the Novo Foundation, which is, comes out of Warren Buffett's pocket. I'm much more worried about, I mean, as much as I'm concerned with Warren Buffett, blah, 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 that next line has a much more concerning name on it. <laughs> the Rockefeller? Rockefeller. Uh-huh. Like, uh-oh. It's these same big money weirdos funding a lot of big money weirdo stuff for... Reasons that look, as Deb said, a little bit not real, but very much to their benefit over and over and over again here. Mm -hmm. well, it's incestuous. It's a really incestuous relationship. Now, like there's, a, you know, a family and it just keeps mating with itself. Uh -huh. Kind of incestuous, but yeah. And the oh, same people and the same people who were involved with Common Core, like <laughs> David Rockefeller, he's the one that kind of was on that Dear Hillary 18 page letter that like got so much traction because they're basically saying, let's just change the whole education system to be outcomes based and have it serve the global workforce. Same thing we see going on right now. Um, and there are same people involved in common core to nationalize the standards there. So then they can say, well, now we need national standards for social emotional skills. And you just see the grift like on and on and on. Yeah. And I love how they call it standards. They're mm -hmm. not standards. Does Linda Darling Hammond come up anywhere in this? Uh, I'm not sure. Adrian's frozen, so not sure what happened to her. Um, oh, now she dropped off, so we'll bring her back in when she gets back. Uh, Linda Darling Hammond, she doesn't seem to be mentioned here 
in this list that she put together that I can see just mostly Angela Duckworth. Um, but Darling Hammond is at the, if, for people who don't know, is at the nexus of both common core and castle, uh, and was an Obama appointee for education and was heavily supported by the radical Marxist leftist Weatherman underground guy, Bill Ayers as like the big guy or the big person to get into education. Every indication points that she's probably a communist, uh, that was integral, uh, integral in, in, um, moving our education system into common core 1.0. And now this SEL based common core 2.0 that they're dangling around. Right. Uh, I always, every chance I get, I try to explain to people that common core was not a common set of standards. It's a, it's a, it was a Trojan horse for eliminating the knowledge-based curriculum. So they replaced actual standards, namely the student will be able to do X with things like the teacher will, you know, present Y. So mm -hmm. now all the teacher has to do is sort of passively present material or make it, you know, in, look like the kids are engaged, but what they actually have to know, what they have to come away with, it has been watered down to the point of not even existing. Oh no, um, Freire is about to appear. A wild yeah. Freire is about to pop up because the right. Freirean model, I'm going to talk about Freire now. Freirean model is use, uses a concept. I have to keep saying this on Twitter. I've actually written a little book about Freire. So now I'm like, I don't really want to talk about Freire because I just want to put the damn thing out. But um, it's because I don't want to repeat myself, but he uses a concept called a, a generative themes model of education. And so why are they data mining your kids? Well, all the reasons we talked about before, but also it enables them to create what are called the generative themes. And so then what you do through what you might call it systemic SEL as they do now or otherwise, you inject those generative themes into the lesson. So for Freire, he's talking about reading lessons. So you talk to the peasants because he was teaching adult literacy to peasants in the third world. You talk to the peasants, you find out what the conditions of their lives are. And rather than giving them basic phonics style reading assignments to teach them to read. Instead, you listen to them and you as the facilitator educator, go decide which themes and words are relevant to their life. Slum, if they live in the cities, day laborer or, you know, hard work or labor or, you know, suffering, starving or whatever it happens to be. If you're out in the fields, you pick these generative concepts and those become the, and he had various stupid rules to make it plausibly look like a literacy program. But those become the concepts that you present. So rather than teaching people simple words and how to read them, how to how to identify syllables or pronounce them or whatever, in Portuguese, you would go through syllables rather than phonics in English. Rather than doing that, he says it's disconnected syllables. It's not relevant to anybody's lives. You would prevent, present them with a word like favela, which is in Portuguese, for it's the word for slum because it's a three syllable word with three syllables. And then you can do the literacy syllable game with the three syllables and pretend you're teaching literacy. But then what you actually do is use that generative theme to generate dialogue about slums and slum life that you then present. He calls it codification, problematization, decodification, which is a remaking of the Hegelian dialectic and education to conscientize the person. So you're what you're doing is you're data mining the kids then in SEL. And the purpose of data mining them is to find out what's culturally relevant to their lives. And then you feed them back a lesson that looks like a reading lesson, or it looks like a math lesson, or it looks like a history lesson, but it's actually used just to prime these social justice discussions. Then you have the social justice discussion using SEL as a justification for right answers about feelings and social awareness, et cetera, to do the codification and decodification process to 
raise a critical consciousness in the students. Um, literally culturally relevant teaching, which came out of Gloria Ladson Billings, is just a repackaging of the generative themes. This is already program. fully realized. In Correct. This is already cases. every school. Your kids already realized. go to this school. And yeah. so, but, but Freire points out in his book, The Politics of Education, explicitly, he says that the point of this is to raise a political literacy that is fully conscientized. In other words, fully Marxist consciousness. And he says that this political literacy is the goal. And, and I quote, whether the students or the learners, sorry, never uses the word students, whether the learners can read or write or not. The success of the literacy program is whether or not they become politically literate on Marxist terms, not whether or not they can read. So you create this program where you plausibly have covered reading lessons. You can say the teacher has provided why. It doesn't matter if the student achieves reading outcomes X any longer because the point was to present that and then to misuse it as a excuse to do a political consciousness raising, raising session, an activism session, like what we're seeing in Rhode Island, where the students are being taken out of class time and trucked down to the state house to lay on the ground and pretend they're dead or to do some other political activism constantly. This is a generative themes model. They're making it real to the students, in other words, codifying and decodifying it for them so that they will become conscientized to their need to do political activism. Meanwhile, the stats, if um, Eric Asanzi got them right when I saw them on Twitter, were that something like 84% of Providence students cannot read at grade level. That's correct. And 95% of students in Providence cannot do math at grade level, right. but they know how to march down to the state house and pretend they're dead. And but do then political they, activism. That, then they use they they don't shy away from the negative outcomes. They use them to their own advantage, and they say that just proves we need more of the thing we're doing. Yeah, it's exactly. Circular. And I bet you, if you looked up the Providence Schools Common Core scores, I bet you they're through the roof. I bet they are pretending to teach the kids math with a ninety-five percent failure rate at actually yeah. achieving it because they're using the Fourierian generative model in this. Common Core became the, as you said, Trojan horse pretext by which they were able to remake our education system directly into a, freer, a totally Freirian model because it doesn't matter if the kids actually learn to read or write or do mathematics or whatever else. All that matters is that the lesson was presented, but the present presentation could be generative than codified uh, political literacy raising, consciousness raising activity instead. And then you're going to use the social emotional learning as the, I mean, like I said, I read this paper yesterday and I was just like, holy crap, it's just, we're going to use social emotional learning as the words that we use to kind of like do a magic spell to conjure in the Freirian model, data mine the kids, see what's on their minds, see what's culturally relevant, see what's on their hearts, use that to create the generative themes and the, the codifications that you're then going to drag through this process blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, shit, this is how this works. Right. They even talk about this on page 18 of this paper. Um, they say that they're trying to make SEL into an accountability mechanism. And um, that SEL is being framed as a way of rating educational provision and performance. And this is what we see now with personalized competency-based learning, because then these kids have to meet these social-emotional learning competencies um, and really, the people behind this see this as a stepping stone to what they call liberatory education is exactly what James was just talking about. It's completely Freirian. Um, basically, they're going to infuse critical theory into every single academic subject. Right. To interject a new morality so that we can have a biological foundation for socialism in a sustainable world order. <sighs> the, all the pieces come together. 
they also get to frame students who are high achieving in in the intellectual domains, the con the content domains, as being deficit having deficits. Yes, correct. Right. So that's a way to lever them to lever the mediocrity to bring to bring yeah. the the top down. If I were a child today, I would be they'd be trying to trans me because I was a tomboy and they would be sending me for counseling because I was an introvert and I really didn't have many friends and I liked it that way. <laughs> and, you know, I was the, you know, little studious one and absolutely they would, they would have sent me or I would be a problem. Yeah, yeah they're already doing, I mean, it. and that's where the educational psychologists come in. They charge you, you know, $3,000 to give you a test and, and, uh, they, they see red flags and then they get to, they get to fit you to the Procrustean bed of the, the SEL paradigm. Yeah, exactly. Procrustean bed. Good one. Look that one up. Uh, it's been coming up a lot. I don't know. It's the Taleb book. I'm telling you, you read that book, yeah. man. And you get all these big words like, you know, iatrogenic and procrustean bed. Um, <laughs> all right. Definitely so, a red flag. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, so can we read some more from the specific quotes from the paper? Because Adrian, you had pulled some, I think, you know, we, 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 this has been so incredible. But what I think will drive the point home of everything that James has been saying and, you know, Lisa and Paul, everything that we've been saying, when people hear some of these little paragraphs, yeah. I think it will be, it's not just us saying, in other words, that, that this is, yeah, it's like ragu, it's in there. Yeah. No, definitely. Or prego. It's prego. <laughs> and, and I apologize. I had to drop off and deal with the, uh, the, the World Economic Forum guy at the door who didn't want me to talk about this. No. Uh, <laughs> they are already limiting my monetization of this, though, by the way. We're not even done. And it's limited. Yeah. A little thing popped up. I was like, oh, okay. I guess we upset Klaus. <laughs> anyway. So uh, what you got? Because you had some doozies. I had a bunch. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I don't know how much, how much you went through the rest of the other few arms of things, but the other arms of the infrastructure, basically the whole commercialization with tech that we've already kind of hit at alongside of the notions of um, local politics with ESSA, ESSA requirements, pushing states to adopt SEL because they have to, they have to uh, distribute funding based on if they're supporting student growth in SEL, right? Um, okay. And then, of course, the other thing we've already hit it at it is the World Bank, UNESCO, OECD, World Economic Forum, all the rest love SEL so that they can, you know, have have the economy that they want, right? Or the or the people that they can control at the same time. Um, I found them. I found the ones you sent me. If you want me to read from these, I got um, them. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of them, and I think it's just like. It's just so freaking creepy. <laughs> this is, psychologists, behavioral scientists, and ec economists have established remarkable positions of expertise, authority, and influence in contemporary societies. In particular, increased political concerns with the emotions, well-being, and behaviors of individuals and populations as healthy citizens and productive labor has led to growing interest in the objective measurement and governance of subjective states. Yep. 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 Another one, a couple. Those are the first two sentences. That's the first two sentences of the article. Growing not interest in the objective measurement and never mind the measurement, but 
governance of subjective states. Oh, wait, wait. Here's another one for you. And what is it? Page three going on to page four, at least, or, or is it page four going on to page five? Either way. As such, emerging SEL policy agendas instantiate a new mode of psychoeconomic governance within education, one underpinned by a political rationality in which, ideally, society is measured effectively through scientific fact-finding as subjects are managed effectively through psychological intervention. Constructing an infrastructure of SEL measurement is central to the enactment of this goal. <laughs> I got a super scary one for you. Go for it. Um, they're talking about the OECD. They said that knowledge can be then used for targeting intervention into the malleable aspects of human personality. This mm -hmm. is on page 22, by the way, um, top paragraph. As such, with SSES, with the, which is the Study on Social-Emotional Skills, and OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, is shifting its ambitions from shaping national-level education systems to intervening in the shaping of children's personalities to achieve economic ends. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a human being wrote that, and it's not in a sci-fi novel. I lost an editor at one point because i said that the weakness of our enemies is that they don't know how to human yeah yeah i'm reading queer theory papers for pride month right now and it turns out that it's really visible in queer theory that they don't know how to human like i actually genuinely think most of these people aren't monsters they literally just don't know why there's a difference between the public and the private domain like they just have no conception that they're different that's like some necessary human faculty. Like it's like being colorblind, but for sexual propriety, like they have no idea why. Mm -hmm. And they feel totally oppressed that they can't be total weirdos. But here we have a human being writing this and probably has no idea why that's creepy as hell. I, it's like, <laughs> and I have this one mirroring the increasing governmental mobilization of scientific knowledge about the body its feelings and how to enumerate and value them within education a psychoeconomic fusion of psychological economic and behavioral expertise has begun to direct policy attention to measurements of students behaviors and emotions and their use as proxy indicators to predict socioeconomic outcomes mm -hmm. i got another one for you in the conclusions of the uh, article through the advocacy of psychoeconomic experts, social-emotional learning has also been economized as a way of producing valuable human capital, individuals who can be nudged to develop the personality traits and socio-emotional skills believed to be predictive of socioeconomic outcomes, particularly in the context of rapidly changing labor markets, where emotional, a human emotional intelligence is being reframed as an augmentative capacity compu to computerized artificial intelligence. There's James. Well, I don't sound like Alex Jones at all anymore. <laughs> I know, right? How about I started by... off sounding like Alex Jones and now it's like hot damn. There I am. <laughs> How about by disassembling the psychological, economic, and statistical infrastructure of SEL into its key component parts and tracking some of its ongoing evolution and mutation, the analysis reveals the centrality of data infrastructures to the formation and enactment of contemporary forms of policy and governance. In particular, it demonstrates how social emotional learning is being positioned as a proxy for social socioeconomic value as the international organization seeks statistical data on the human psychological characteristics and emotional intelligence. Oh, you already said this part yeah. about the, okay. So we got that, but they're disassembling the psycho. I, 
I think James put it best. They don't know how to human. <laughs> like it's it's super creepy and scary if you think they could possibly achieve this. But what's what I it's actually actually no that that part doesn't scare me because I know they can't. The part that scares me is the damage they're doing while they're trying to do it. Yeah. That I mean, I read this literature all the time and every almost every day I read something at least once where I think, wow, they actually really wrote that part down. Like a normal person right. would not have written that part down. They might have thought it like that. Women's studies as a virus, that whole paper. I'm still flabbergasted that anybody ever decided to write down the ideal metaphor for our pedagogical approach is as a virus. We are basically HIV, Ebola, and SARS. Some viruses cause cancer. We think that's great because it represents true transformative change. Conservatives are like an immune system, but that's why we need HIV because it suppresses the immune system. And they wrote that down. And then they were like, this is a great idea. And then they sent that to a journal. And the journal was like, this is a great idea. We should publish this. Like, well, the, no the normal, every normal person would see like red flags everywhere and think, maybe don't put that. Hmm, but, but they do. But if the host is evil, then the virus is good. Well, so they, they actually say because it's it's Marxist, right? So it's magical. They they don't even go there. You think they would go to the host is evil, so the virus is good. Only the transformative part is good. They actually argue in the paper with no justification for why. They say typically, you know, if the virus gets out of control, it will kill its host. But this virus won't kill its host. It just won't. They even go in, they go to that. They're like, no, it'll be beneficial for the virus and the host. That's what they say. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if your it's analogy, like the, just make your analogy fit any way you, you can. It's so like it's not that far. It's not that far-fetched for those of us who say they're actively trying to sterilize as many children as they possibly can so they can't literally can't reproduce they're perfectly content to have them be ones that are you know they're problems they're autistic or they you know have adhd whatever so much the better it's a eugenics so we'll do a little we'll do a little literal biological eugenics with the gender stuff and then you know they turn around and they do this personality eugenics the psychological eugenics dividing us into alpha beta gamma delta whatever with all the ccl junk and at some point, since they've now openly stated, I've seen two people on video unapologetically say they need to, we need to reduce the world's population. One guy said by 6 billion people so that we only have 1 billion left. And then somebody else said just by half. Just by, it was okay. You, you know, I put that like on Thanos. Twitter a year and a half ago. I put that on Twitter and everybody lost their freaking minds. Everybody lost They're their freaking minds. They're saying They're not even... I said, just in case you didn't know, the plan is to try to get the world population below 2 billion by 2050. And people lost their friggin' minds that I said this. And I was like, yeah, I could just be wrong, but I don't think I am. No, I'm total, you know, I'm Alex Jones, but Alex Jones was right. So well, what yeah. do you do? I was gonna but say I mean, this, this is this is the, the thing. And, and what's really scary about that is that too is based on a lie that the planet can't sustain this many people. And it's like, well, no, it's the elite can't sustain their power mm -hmm. with this many people. Because That's when right. you have this many people, then this many people are, if you, especially if you leave them alone to their own devices, they're going to form a massive middle class. And that massive middle class presents a challenge to the people in power and its top because we, they don't really care for having people perpetually in the same position. Right. That's not how middle classes work. People, there's people who aspire to be at the top and then there are people in the middle who are just like you've had your turn bye-bye and they don't want that they want to have dynasties mm -hmm. and be perpetually in power yeah 
I was going to say, there's a long section at the end that actually really also crystal, I think summarizes the whole SEL nonsense really well and is actually also terrifying at the same time. <laughs> but <Go for> it. <laughs> it's just like, they have three con they have three conclusions at the end here, and it's like third and following from this, education policy is gradually adapting to a new political rationality and a political economy in which expert knowledge of human psychology and behavioral economics, especially, is accepted as a legitimate source for policy intervention and governance. The emerging SEL field is embedded in a political rationality that emphasizes the social, political, and economic value to be derived from measurement and prediction of individuals' psychological characteristics, behavioral habits, and personality traits. These forms of psychological and behavioral governance as embodied in a globalizing behavior change policy agenda are dedicated to the intentional shaping of human action, emotions, and personal character through the deployment of scientific insights, experimentation, and methods. Fatima terms this as a psycho psychocracy or a technocracy with a psychological twist, a form of public decision-making that reduces the world of policymaking to a rational, instrumental, and top-down affair dictated by psychological expertise. The infrastructure of SEL measurement examined in this article is a socio-technical instantiation of the political rationality of psychocracy within the education sector. Why don't we just put astrologers back in charge of the world? <laughs> Well, you said that that's, you, know, you said new yeah. rationality, right? That's the point. A new rationality, right? Well, that I made a face because I was like, that's in the essay on liberation by Marcuse. <laughs> in contrast, the radical transformation of society implies the union of the new sensibility with a new rationality. The imagination becomes productive if it becomes the mediator between sensibility on the one hand and theoretical as well as practical reason on the other. And in this harmony, harmony faculties in which Kant saw the token of freedom guides the reconstruction of society. Such a union has been the distinguishing feature of art, but its realization has been stopped at the point with, uh, at which it would have become incompatible with the basic institutions and social relationships. The material culture, the reality continued to lag behind the progress of reason and imagination and to condemn much of these faculties to irreality, fantasy, and fiction, and on and on and on. So we need a new a new rationality. It actually says we need a new reality as well, which is even crazier. Um, a new reality, a new emergence of a new reality principle under which a new sensibility and desublimated de scientific intelligence would combine in the creation of an aesthetic ethos. And so he's got this whole view that there's a new reality has to come into being. Uh, he says the familiar vocabulary of freedom and justice and equality could thus obtain not only a new meaning, but also a new reality, the reality that emerged in the revolutions of the 17th and 18th centuries and led to less restricted forms of freedom, justice, and equality. And so we've got to have this new rationality behind this new introjected morality. Like it's right there. It, you know, this a whole new rationality that takes into account the imagination and the, the emotion, the social emotional uh, landscape in which people are. So we create an entirely new ethos and a new aesthetic that aesthetic we already see. It's the fa faceless identity aesthetic that they're throwing out. Nobody has a face, but you can see what color their skin is and every piece of art they put they out. They did that in a fashion show the other day. They literally Good. did that in a fashion show. They had the models wearing like a colored skin over their oh, face. So they had no features whatsoever, no hair. No, They look like human mannequins. And they were wearing the clothes 
don't know if it was Valentino Gucci. I don't remember what it was. And I saw a clip of it and I was like, that right there is a, a visual metaphor for everything that is happening. They were doing it. That's what they Yeah, do. it's like it's the new Soviet realism or whatever, where they're trying to like will this identity political intersectional vision into existence where that group identity becomes the marker of what you are. Soviet realism at least like leaned into the real. Uh, this is kind of a like intersectional anti-realism or something like that, where, where you're just kind of an avatar of this group identity represented by skin color and various secondary sex characteristics and hairstyles or whatever and pieces of clothing. Um, it's Why, really you, you, you iconify. We're iconifying ourselves. It's, it, it's funny because flat design came out of web design. Like the, if you look at early web design, it used to be very sort of, it looks very quaint and, and set and, and silly in a representational way. And then they sort of streamlined it and turned everything to 2d and iconified everything. And that's what we're doing to ourselves. It's funny because it's like literally the commodification of people so that we can have social economic outcomes, just like the paper says. Right. But then they frame it as they're trying to help people because even in one of these, uh, it's on page 23, they say the policy relevance of these social, you know, study on social economic, uh, social and emotional skills then is to enable governments to future proof or perhaps robot proof their stock of human capital. First by measuring social emotional skills through scientific methods, then by calculating these indicators of socioeconomic outcomes, and finally by intervening to ensure humans do not lose economic value as a work is increasingly outsourced to digitized automated machines. So it's they're trying to help you not become irrelevant in the future workforce, you know. So it's all like they're trying to help you, but really it's it's for their own ends at all. Yeah. Well, you well, gotta have a moral system. You gotta have a moral system that is for the for the benefit. So like if you if you were if you were running the there whole they show, are. Yeah. There they are. There they are. Look at that. Like they're not showing their face. They have these things over their faces. And they still, oh, they did have hair. It stuck out the back. But look at that. The they're remember so models weird. are some of the most beautiful people in the world. And they're, you know, but it's like, nope, it's just a clothes well, hanger. You know, it reminds me also of all the DEI propaganda posters that are just the faceless people with different. They are faceless. That seems to be like a thing. And I guess what I don't understand is they're selling it. When I look at this paper or SEL, they sell it to the schools. They sell it to the parents as helping the kids. They sell it to, you know, governments. They're selling it using different arguments about how great it is for that particular stakeholder. But the kids are on the receiving end of all this garbage. And the one thing they're not doing is they're not selling it to the kids. And what I mean by that is that, you know, they're, there's, they just do it to the kids. The kids are on the receiving end of it. And I think that's going to end up being their undoing because as you pointed out, James, like they don't know how to human, they obviously don't know anything about children and they don't know how kids think and they don't know the intricate way that, you know, kids lie and pretend and do all this stuff. Now I'm not saying it's not going to hurt the kids. It is hurting kids. And there's no question about that. We can't even predict the, the ways it's going to end up hurting them. But I also think you're going to have a cohort of kids who are quite rebellious, possibly more rebellious than our founders. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a point I was thinking about it today. 
if I'm hanging out with somebody who's asking me all the time how I feel and prying into my feelings, and I granted I'm an introvert, but a lot of people are. I mean, it's it's a, it's a personality, and these people are poking and poking and poking and poking. I I get unpleasant, and <laughs> I don't like it, and a lot of people don't like it, and they push back or they do whatever they have to do to get you to leave them alone, or they'll just straight lie. Oh yeah, and so they're what they think they know about these kids they don't actually know and they're like i said they're collecting so much data and they're not all that competent at at it it's not it's not an exact science it's all it's not even really a science so i just think they're going to think they know a lot of things they don't actually know and um the kids are going to be the ones who ultimately not all of them but they're going to be kids i believe who are just going to be like yeah no way that coupled with the kids who will be educated outside the system and their numbers are growing and if i have anything to say about it they'll grow even further um the without force and i mean brutal force they're not going to drag those kids back into this they, they they and that's happening at a rate too quickly for them to adjust like legislatively so i know they're hoping to proceed at a pace where they can gradually outlaw homeschooling and graduate they're not going to get there before there's a critical mass of people who are off educating their own children and doing their own things. And it will, will require like Tiananmen square levels of force to get them back into the system. I just don't, I mean, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think I'm it's fairly optimistic with you, to be honest with you. You're yeah. Right. I think it's going to be bad, but I'm, I, I, I have similar optimism to you. Um, I'm the same as you. I actually have had a number of friends throughout uh, the last so many years. And as I've become famous, it, they become increasingly annoying to the point where I actually first start making fun of them. Then I kind of become openly hostile to them. Uh, and the, the, I call them and I say it in a particular way, but when I talk to my wife about them, they're the, how are you people? Cause it's like the message I get, the text message I get virtually daily from like 40 different people. How are you? And they want a friggin' answer. I don't want to talk about how I am. I'm busy. That's how I am. And it's like my mom, I make allowances for, Everybody else can basically go to hell. And if you keep trying to pry into my feelings, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, on, on that regard, I think they're really going to try for this, though. Um, I honestly feel to kind of give another kind of white pill moment here. I actually feel like social emotional learning, although it's already pretty entrenched and embedded and has grown up. Uh, in a sense, we were on a little bit on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on our heel when we took up the battle against critical race theory. And I feel like we've actually cut them off at the pass in a significant way, even though it's already so integrated in things like it's been very quick for people to just sniff out that this is an acronym representing something not good. And it's going to become a major point of contention. And I don't think they're going to be able to pull any of the tricks, the rebranding, all of the stuff that that they were able to kind of throw this fog of, of mystification or, or whatever around critical race theory. I just don't think it's going to work. I think we're actually going to cut them off at the pass with SEL. I feel the same. It's not the same, but it's connected to the ESG thing also. I feel like they're having to reckon with the fact that we're getting ahead of their games and we're doing so very, very quickly. Um, but as far as the kids go, it's going to mess them, a bunch of them up. Uh, and the longer it goes on, the worse. But I keep talking to people who, you know, they're just middle of the road people. They're not like these crazy conservatives or crazy this or crazy that. And they're, you know, 12, 13 year old kids. They get to about that age and they're just like, no, 
I hate this. They're getting asked, you know, they have to play the pronoun game. They get in these huge fights because it'll be like, what are your pronouns? I'm a girl. You figure it out. Will be like their answer. It's like, I'm a girl. Go ahead, figure it out. You know, if you don't assume my pronouns, you're going to insult me and we're going to have an, we're going to have an issue here. But if you do assume my pronoun, uh, yeah, you do assume my pronouns and you're overriding me and we have an issue here. Um, and so it's really like pe the, the kids, uh, like 13 year olds are figuring out the right answer to the pronoun game where adults have been like, what do we do? What do we do? So I think that you're right. That, that natural, like, what are you doing? Like kids do know when they're being messed with and manipulated. And these people are kind of really transparently doing it. Um, I see the seeds of that rebellious generation kind of creeping up. I'm a little worried. Like nobody wants to drive. Like nobody like wants to take any risks, especially the boys like don't know how to handle being joked with or teased or whatever else. Um, so there's some issues there, but overall I think we're going to find kind of a, a breaking through moment coming pretty quickly. And I think we've cut them off quite a bit in this program. Right. I think I agree. I think we've we've gotten ahead of it better with the SEL. And I also think it animates parents a little more. I mean, Lisa, you know, you talk to parents, maybe you can shed some light on this. But I think whenever I talk to parents about the way they're prying into their kids um, minds in school when they're not licensed and the kids aren't sick. Right. In other words, you know, the parents had two years of, of the kids not being allowed in the school and then they go back and they're spending weeks on end just prying and these are not doctors and there's no indication their kid needs it. Parents get pretty upset about that. And then when you add in all the work that, that James has been doing about groomer schools, and we've now been educating people about what grooming is, that it's not just for sex. There's ideological grooming that, you know, taking teachers and making them peers and violating those boundaries is a form of grooming. Do you feel like that animates parents more to get involved, to protect their children's psyches that more so than the critical race theory, or is it about the same? I think it's, I think it's more that SCL really affects them more because I think, you know, for, for me, when Stacy and I dug into the second step curriculum and we were able to show parents that look, they're, they're directing 12 and 13 year olds toward links that are talking about um, five tips for your first time. And that led to other websites that talked about BDSM. I mean, parents don't like that. They don't like the sexualization of their children. They don't like the mind manipulation of their children. Um, and I think a lot of them were completely unaware that a lot of this stuff that they're teaching kids is non-academic and that it's being collected as data um, that's going to follow them their whole life. So I think for parents, when they when they really factor in that whole part where they're like, oh, they're going to collect this data and maybe companies in the future will hire based on how inclusive my kid is, I think that when they start looking towards their kids' futures and, and thinking about the implications of this, I mean, I think that really gets them in a place where like, hey, we, we need to push back against this so much so that our own district voted second step out. That's great. That's great. And then too, we have a large immigrant population in this country. And many of these immigrants come from countries where they had more, you know, government, you know, oversight and so forth. I mean, I just talked to Dr. Ping today and he's originally from Mao's China. And so, you know, he knows people in his community that are like, wait, what? And of course, you know, then also uh, um, I've talked to other people, Lily Tang Williams, same story. You have immigrant populations who just can't believe that anyone would want this. And they're very vocal. 
in some cases, they're sort of embarrassing of, you know, native born Americans who, you know, like we have this beautiful thing called American citizenship and we were born here. And we had all this, you know, uh, I consider, I consider myself very lucky that I was born in this country. And there are a lot of people walking around who don't realize that they don't have that view from the other side of the world or whatever. And luckily we, because we have such a large immigrant population with people living here who do. And, um, and I think they've done a lot of good in terms of pushing back on this as well. Um, and I, so I, I've just, I, I'm blackpilled in some respects, like I'm blackpilled about the system. The system is garbage. The I mean, there's not, it, there's <laughs> no say it that way. Saving. What? The system is fucked. Pardon my language. No, it's, 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 it's poison. Like, I mean, it just is. There's nothing good to be eked out of it. Like, even if you tried to, if it was a sponge and you were like, maybe something, no, but, um, but I, at the same time, I think the incompetence that makes it so bad will end up sort of protecting us in the long run. But for individual children, they're in trouble. So individual children need to get out. That's my, that's my rallying cry. And that's why I present this material. So people can decide for themselves as an individual family. Do I want this around my kid? You, you know, you can't change it for anybody else. You can change it for you. Right. I mean, James, there's no, every, everything that we're talking about, you don't envision a world in which we are successful at changing them. Do you? Uh, changing them no the schools like the the public school system is unlikely to wake up at some point in you know the next few years and go oh that was a really bad idea let's not do that anymore we're gonna have to remove a i mean depends on what you define as the system i don't mean to play a bill clinton what do you mean by is game here but um if we remove a lot of the people, then the public school system, I believe, is salvageable and recoverable unto what won't be like the existing system won't be what we have. There will be a public school system that probably uses most of the same buildings and has some continuity of personnel. But I mean, I'm almost to the mentality that the way that that would have to be done is by removing everybody, literally firing everyone and rehiring outside of the parameters that have brought the people in and then starting to fill in vacancies uh, rather than, I mean, which is a complete burn it to the ground and start over. Um, right. In that which I case, go I with. guess it's a, it's a different <laughs> system. Um, right. I mean, I could see that. I just, my problem is given the existing unions... bureaucratic apparatus and the existing uh, pedagogical approach, which are deeply entrenched over decades, both have to be completely rethought. So that which we call the school system could persist, but will be a completely different school system. I don't think that you're going to find the people perpetrating this to find one day wake up and say, oh my gosh, we've been all wrong. I think that they literally think that they're doing the one right thing and it's gone on long enough to where nobody's been able to, to point out, you know, you guys are way off track and there's a nobody to hold them accountable to fire them when they start getting off track in this way. I mean, the Freirian model has been probably dominant since 90, 95, somewhere in between in terms of colleges of education. And it's just trickled down. It's not been dominant in school systems since 90, but it has been in colleges of education since about 1990. Um, yeah, I was I was a Penn grad ed and I graduated in 90 and they made us read fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he broke into the North American market occasionally through the 60s and 70s 
but really it was an 85 that he really kind of broke in. And when he broke in in 85, it fast tracked. He became like the hottest thing since like Michael Jackson or something in 1985. And that was an answer because the whole academic establishment was freaking out in 1985 about Reagan. And so they were going full tilt the other direction to try to create a counterbalance to the Reagan revolution, um, which they literally saw as potentially the end of the world. What was the end of the Soviet world? (laughs) Well, well, right. right. Apparently not. Um, Now, Paul, in the private schools, we know that critical theory is deeply entrenched there as far as the racial stuff and the DEI. Is the SEL also there in the private schools, this SEL data mining stuff? You know, it has, I think, um, uh, just from my own experience at where I was uh, at my school, Grace Church School, they were just starting to bring it in. Um, and we were starting to experiment with a lot with some of this stuff, but it, it was not connected to big data in, in any way. I think like maybe that's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very, um, boutique, I would say oriented. So we have, we would have mm-hmm. things like circles and processing sessions and touchy feely things. We did a lot of mindfulness was really big or, you know, brain softening as I call it. Um, and so like that was always the, the preamble to right. some kind of, um, racial literacy program, right? It's like, we're going to open your mind. We don't want you to be judgmental when we, you know, so we're going to get you in this relaxed state. They could literally be like, you know, the, the flashing lights at you in a certain order and pattern. But instead well, they, had, redef- they had a very annoying person leading these meditative sessions and I would have a visceral reaction to anything that came out of their mouth, but everyone else seemed to love the guy. So apparently he was working. Um, They've redefined the word resilience. So it's along the, you know, Robin D'Angelo white fragility line where, you know, in order to be resilient, they mean racially resilient or how much crap can you take before you get fragile, you know, before you push back. So when they're rating these kids with SEL on their resilience score, I think what they're really doing is they're saying, you know, how individualistic is this kid? And if they're too individualistic, they have a low resiliency score because they won't take shit. And right. that it's the opposite of what it's you would think. It's actually compliance they're measuring. Exactly. Yeah. Everything's the opposite, right? You know, it's like, James, you were saying the iron the iron law of woke projection. Well, they also have some kind of an iron law of upside down word definition. Yeah, it's inversion. There are actually yeah. four iron laws of woke um, that I've now formulated. The iron law of woke projection, which, I mean, they're all interrelated. The iron law of woke corruption. Um I bet you you dig into any of these people, you're going to find embezzlement or something. Uh, The iron law of, we could call this woke inversion, which is where they invert, they literally invert the situation or invert the meaning of words. And the other one is the uh, iron law of woke overreaction. That if you identify and and point out anything that they're doing, they will always overreact. Um, Those are the four iron laws of wokeness that I've identified. Until next week when they tell you how wonderful it is. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's an inversion, though. But um, you do realize also that that with ESG and the World Economic Forum, that uh, Klaus repeatedly says throughout his books and is in his talks that they are thinking that ESG needs a fourth letter added, which is R for resilience. And they're also contemplating now a fifth letter 
H for health. So it would actually, I don't know what kind of an acronym we're going to end wretch. up with. I haven't tried like wretch or something like that. <laughs> like many, I haven't figured out many, what it spells. How many farmer products are you taking on a daily basis will be determining how healthy you are? Well, I mean, they're going to have those pills with the compliance robot in them. So yeah, exactly. I tell you what. Technology. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, they're already people who are volunteering. They're lining up to say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Put a chip in me. I'm so excited about this. And they are parents who want chips in their children. Well, because they, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. They're, just, they're selling it. You know, that thing where it kind of works both ways. Parents are seeing, you know, oh, well, I don't want my child to be this way because, um, you know, that's going to be, um, they're going to be judged on this and that's wrong, but they're actually using that to say that's why they need to do it is because in the future society, they're going to be judged on their resilience, their EQ, whatever, whatever thing is. And so um, you have to make the double leap of, you have to have a parent that is going to say, you know what I want. I, some parents are going to say, yeah, that's good because like you said, they want a chip because it's going to help them adapt to this new world, which no one's going to stop. Um, and then some are like, no, if that is the new world, well, I don't want my child to be a part of it because that's because right. that's wrong. So it really it really hones the divide there. Yeah, it, re it really does. Like where what is your philosophy of life? And yeah. I think COVID, the the reaction to COVID and the reaction to the, the people's reaction to the policies taught us a lot. It taught me a lot. I, I, yeah. I, it was mostly depressing, but it opened my eyes to how many people already are very uh, compliant people and without much, without much, uh, you know, to, to tell them to be, you know, like, oh, an expert in a white lab coat told me, and that means I have to do it was the answer for a lot of people. And, um, I can't, I know it's this big conspiracy theory that people have called it, you know, plan or whatever. And, but even if it wasn't, it certainly did, I think, serve the people who are interested in this very well in terms of some kind of proof of concept or some kind of evaluation, like, how are we doing? Oh, okay. We've got this many people and the people who are going to be a problem, they live here and here and here. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were people sitting in a room somewhere having that exact conversation. Am I crazy? <laughs> I doubt you're crazy. I mean, I, I, I've been to China a bunch of times and I, I have kind of the experience Paul was referencing. I've had it, you know, China's, if you want a couple of steps further down the road that they want to walk us. Um, and my experience there, I don't know what the proportions are. Somebody told me it was about 50, 50 from there, you know, somebody who lives there, but I don't know if that's correct or not. I mean, it's just kind of a, you know, personal experience approximation. Uh, but there are definitely Chinese people, younger people, particularly who you talk to, and about, I guess, half are of the mindset that we just want to be told what to do because it's less to think about. And then the rest are the sentiment they share because of the way China's already under the boot is please don't let America fall because then there's no hope for anybody. And those are kind of the two sentiments, like keep America free at all costs, or, oh, we like being told what to do. And so it would make total sense that people who want to replicate the Chinese model throughout the West of, you know, authoritarian social control um, that you can then profit off of through whatever weird mechanisms would be sitting there thinking, how do we identify which 
people are in which of those two categories and how do we make sure that there's enough of them that are satisfied with being told what to do uh, and how do we make life basically unbearable for people who are in the other category um, so that we can facilitate this transition um, against in China it was not an uphill battle to install this but because of Mao uh, it is an uphill battle in the United States because of the Constitution and also frankly despite a little bit of pessimism for me Deb the will of the American people is not all the way asleep um, there are there are a lot of Americans who are like okay two weeks to two years to flatten the curve great and the, there are a lot of Americans who are like hell no and the hell no number is, you know, I'm starting to see more people with the American flag standing in the wind of the hurricane than I am people who are like, okay, whatever you say, boss. Um, right. And that's a big problem for them. The Constitution and the American, you know, uh, will to liberty are are both um, huge stumbling blocks for this program that, that they want to try to install. But I don't think you're crazy to think that they've been trying to figure out how do we find out who's in which box and what do we do to, let's say, use SEL to nudge them or their children in particular directions? And to sort them. So, I sort mean, it works and, in both yeah. ways, you know, so they can do the nudging like Adrian was talking about. And they can also do the sorting and they can figure out who's who. And um, then, of course, we know that they're sorting. They're classifying these kids based on whether they have strengths or they need, you know, they need further instruction or they're typical is what they're calling it. And um, that then goes into a folder and that, and that can be cross-referenced electronically with ease with a couple of keystrokes. They can sort and group all the kids in a given school in a given district. And it's, I think only a matter of time before they have them quite literally in different classes, learning different material taught by different people. And they're going, we already know they're starting to segregate by race Again, justifying it, calling it equity. Um, I saw just today in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, they're ending their busing program. On the one hand, that's good because the busing program was sort of forced togetherness that was causing kids to have to go to school far away from their homes. But their justification for it, of course, is equity. And they're giving only the black and brown kids the option to go to whatever school they want. Not the other kid, the kid that not the white kids, whether the white kids live in those other neighborhoods or not. So it's like, you know, we're going to end the busing program, but the black kids who are going back to these other neighborhoods, they can go where whatever school their parents choose because, you know, it's not really fair, blah, blah, because they're black. And this is a public school district. And I don't see people freaking out and citing the constitution. There's got to be a lawsuit. There ha would have to yeah. be, but we're seeing it happen more and more and more where there's this like, well, we're going to segregate them by race. Well, we're going to segregate them by this or that or the other because reasons, because equity, because whatever. And now that they're gathering all this data, they're going to be able to fine tune that and claim it's for the student's benefit academically or some other way. So when they go to the lawsuit, that's what I'm wondering is they go to the court and we already know equity is entering the law. So we've got where our days are numbered as far as how long we're going to have justices that remember the constitution actually matters. But, you know, they're already coming up with these newfangled arguments to say it's beneficial to the child. Yeah. But again, I think that's where the, that's where the constitution, at least, at least for now, I hope. you I know, hope so. is, is, I, if I the think law the courts falls, we're done. The last, yeah. That's one of the, 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 the stops here. Yeah.
I mean, they have to take all the institutions and they're working hard at the law, but I don't know. Um, I sometimes wonder if the Supreme Court, you know, made this most recent decision as a way to say, you didn't get us yet. You know, I mean, whether I agree with it or not, I'm not going to even go into. I'm just saying it's so. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... so a bigger Supreme Court decision that says that the law is not dead yet was actually a nine zero ruling earlier this year. That was a case about them flying. I don't remember if it was just Black Lives Matter or if it was a Black Lives Matter and a pride flag and a Christian group. Asked one in Boston. to be able to fly. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. to, to fly a Christian flag. And they said no. And that was ruled 9-0, a First Amendment violation, at which point the next day a Christian flag and a Satan flag went up. And then the day after that, all the flags came down. And schools across at least New England and I think across the country, school systems um, started taking down their Black Lives Matter trans and pride flags because they knew. And there's actually, when I was in, I learned about this, actually, I heard about it first when I was in Vermont and recently, and one of the guys talking there said there was a school district there in Vermont where they actually have the superintendent on audio recorded, maybe even video recorded saying, well, we knew it was against the First Amendment when we put them up, but we didn't think anybody else would know. And that was their justification for putting him up. And so the law is not dead. And all of a sudden, you know, he's taking him down. And now this yeah. guy, this superintendent is probably going to lose his job because there's this record. We knew we were violating the law and we did it anyway because we thought everybody was too stupid to call us on it. And so there are hopeful signs within the law as well, you know, even specifically related to this kind of thing. But what that means is people have to be willing to provoke as well. I think every time you see a school where they're flying a Black Lives Matter or a pride flag and they're running their mouths about it, everybody, I don't, I don't, I'm not even Christian. I'll go ask to fly a Christian flag. Like, I want to put up a Christian flag here. Uh, you're flying that one. I want this one. And see what happens. And, and, you know, in this case, though, with the Supreme Court ruling, any lawyer in the universe that talks to him is going to be like, you better take them all down or let them put it up one or the other. Um, at which point you then provoke further by saying, well, we're going to put up the Satan flag and it's like something they really don't want up. And you just continue to do this. Right. And I mean, I think make, fly, make the school fly a Nazi flag, make it, make them do it if they won't take them down. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, if they're putting, they're putting uh, flags with, you know, uh, the communist flag in California schools, and there's literally a statute on the books in California that you're not allowed to teach communism in the classroom. And of course, yeah. We're, they're doing it anyway. Um, but I know I think that you're right about that. I actually interviewed Hal Shirtliff, who was uh, the guy in charge of Camp Constitution, and he was in instrumental in that case. Um, months ago, he came on the show talking about, well, we're waiting for a decision, whatever. And I, I was pretty happy for them because um, regardless of what I feel about the specific flag, it was a win for free speech. Um, on the other hand, then you have situations like school districts that have won their discrimination cases and the, the districts are spending taxpayer money on lawyers to appeal rather than just follow the law. It's almost right, like they just course. want to run out the clock or something. They've been told you're discriminating by race and you need to stop. And in fact, in the case in Virginia with Thomas Jefferson High Osra School, Osra Namani School, um, they were the, the court told them you better come up with a plan to change your admissions policies in case you lose. So you're ready for the school year. They didn't. They not no, only didn't not. follow the directions, but then they're appealing anyway. And I mean, that's ballsy. So that's what, you know, that's why I'm sort of like, I'm hopeful, but then I see them doing that. And I'm like, 
why are there not parents with pitchforks and torches? This you talk about being provocative, and I don't want to sound like I'm calling for armed insurrection, but how about just a march? How about the same level of passion that the kids are showing getting on a bus and going and laying down for gun stuff or whatever? Why aren't there hundreds and hundreds of parents just showing up at these schools and saying, stop spying on our kids, stop poking around in their brains, cut it out, teach them how to read. Or stop. I mean, that should just be happening every day. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah I was going to say one of the things I wonder with this is that is has there been too much of a deference toward the judgment of experts as being the best thing for for everyone, because it's like uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court. Like one of the things I saw in oh goodness, it was either uh, it was either scientific and no, it was Nature. I think a bunch of scientists wrote an editorial in Nature screaming about the fact, well, the Supreme Court, if they go through with this, is ignoring the science around abortion and da, 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 and what have you, as in, as in like preference to having experts around the world, if you will. So I do wonder if there's been a sort of, and I welcome others' thoughts on this, drill in the notion that, well, you should listen to the experts on these things. They're the ones who know the best. They can run society the best. And then it leads us down the road of the SEL manipulation of everything there where you just like, well, you got to listen to the experts. They know how you help your kids get a job in the future, right, mm -hmm. in the future economy. So I do wonder if there's been too much of a deference to, too much of a deference put on to people to say, you should listen to the experts. They know best. And well, James is an expert. They should listen to him. Um, no, <laughs> um, this, this uh, Judy C says parents don't know. And I sadly would probably agree. I mean, obviously that's why I'm here, but there's 20 people watching. So, I mean, we try, um, but I'm open to anybody here before we, I know I've had everybody here a long time, so I want to wrap up, but um, anybody have any further suggestions on how we can better help parents know? Because we're obviously trying, but there's got to be a better way. We don't control the media, so we can't really get on the news. I mean, with any degree of regularity, there's always going to be somebody telling us we're crazy and we're right-wing conservative, whatever, whatever. Right, um, well, I've but I've a few things, Deb, to try to help parents know. Um, in my own area, I host cottage meetings. Um, we get together at someone's house. We have people gather a bunch of people there, and we just get on a personal level with people. Hey, listen, this is what's going on in your child's school. Um, the other thing I did was start a YouTube channel and I try to educate parents on there. Hey, listen, this is, this is what SEL really is. They're feeding you a line of garbage and you need to just figure out like, this is what they're really trying to do to your kids. So I think that um, parents just need to have the want to get out there. And I think that's where we're really struggling is, is parents don't have the wherewithal to go out there and figure out what's going on there they're willing to let other people fight that battle for them. Um, so we have to get parents riled up about something, right? Whether it be the pornography in the library books or something, but we have to get them hungry and thirsty for the knowledge that's out there for them. I just, I just wish that in doing so, they didn't get nudged towards politics. Um, or maybe, I don't know, do you guys agree with me on that? Or am I all alone here? I don't think this is solved through voting. I think no. this, I'm not saying it's completely useless, but I'm, I don't think that's the solution. Like people who are putting all their eggs in the pick the guy with the R after his name and all will be well basket are going to be very, very disappointed. Big um, disappointment. Yeah. I don't think that's the answer to the point where 
I really discourage people from putting their money, their time, their energy. I mean, people, we only have so much of all of those things, right? Into that. And I think there's more to be gained. First of all, on the individual level with your own child, figure it out this summer and just unenroll. If for no other reason than deprive them of their funding starting the year, <laughs> then they'll have less funding to spend on all this SEL garbage. But, you know, get out and figure it out for yourself. Get a group of people together in your community and form a little micro school or do whatever. It doesn't have to be at home in your kitchen table. Um, that's would be my first choice. And that would hit them where, where they, they live. But like you said, getting together locally with people and just motivating parents to push back more right there in their communities. I don't think this gets addressed anything but locally. Well, I don't yeah. think there's a, a political solution. I, I would I would second that because that's that's one of the big things in the infrastructure, right? Is just the local politics that also wants to push this, this stuff onto kids. So that's that's where you start with it, right? right. So Lisa, good on you. You just like I don't have kids, but I talk about it all over here with the parents that are in Norman, and it's just you know we we try and do the same thing, really. So aside from yeah. yakking about it on YouTube with all of you find fantastic people. Well, the big challenge, though, the only thing I will say about the politics is that when you've got the federal government, federal Department of Education sitting on top of a pile of printing ink <laughs> and money they can bribe governors with and state boards of ed, it's really tough to push back on something like SEL because they are using their power to literally do that, to bribe the school district or the, the states um, to implement this thing. That's how, that's how the lion's share of it's getting paid for is with federal dollars. And they're making it a condition. You will not get ESSER funds if you don't do this. And it has to be castle compliant. So it's not like you can just go and get Jason Littlefield and his empower, empowered ed or, you know, program, which is a much better version of it you can't just go do that it has to be castle compliant in that they're calling that research base so unless you get a governor who's going to say you know like a desantis who's going to say no keep your money don't want it and that takes a lot of political guts i just don't see that widespread in this country i really don't they're going to take the money which means the program's going to get into the school um so the acting locally to me is more about finding other people to help you leave or get your individual school district to find ways to work around, you know, not using the ESSER funds. In other words, might get into your state, but maybe you can talk to your superintendent or your district and they'll be like, we'll do without it. We're not going to put in for it. They can keep it over there in that part of the state or whatever, which is still sucks. Those kids are going to suffer, but maybe you don't have to use it in your district, but that's, that's where we are. They're bribing people with billions and billions of dollars, 122, uh, what was it? Uh, 122 billion this year alone. So no, sorry, my bad. 122 million. I think on the SEL, the last portion of ESSER was, was that the president was bragging about it. Or maybe it was billion. Somebody will correct me. I get my yeah, billions and millions sure. confused. It's just too much money. Put it that what way. Would, too much. Yeah, that that that's a hard nut to crack. Um, it will require somebody with lots of political guts to come in and try to clean up without being an outright dictator. Uh, DeSantis yeah. is very good at threading that that needle, and very few other people that I've seen anywhere have. Uh, 
I don't trust red states and I don't trust fully blue states. It's the purple ones where I feel like there's some heart left. Uh, and Florida was purple until DeSantis got in. And so it's kind of a, a, a model there. But what, you know, the question was, how do we keep getting the word out? And, you know, my experience, I started screaming about this years ago has been that if you keep saying things that make sense and you keep going back to concrete sources and rather than just kind of talking out of your own head, then people start to listen and it grows. And then the, the better the job you do, the more people listen. It actually does get out. Then you can start connecting with awesome people that, like Lisa that know how to do things like get people to come over and have like a potluck dinner and talk about school stuff or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but it really does. Like you say, there's only a few people watching this. It's live. And I mean, not to pull rank here, but I didn't tweet it because I didn't realize I should have. But I'll share it later and it's going to get some views. Uh, And so, you you know, when it starts getting it's not as hard as it as you think it is to get the attention of things that will get certain issues out there. Uh, I very rarely run into people. I mean, it's about 50 50. I shouldn't say very rarely. Uh, Everybody knows what CRT is now. It's about 50 50 with SEL. It's probably 50 50 with ESG now. Um, That's a very, very rapid uh, dissemination where nobody was talking about this almost a year ago yeah. to have this level of, of informed uh, populace. And then, you know, you have this paper, you have this concrete, you know, stuff people can point to. And mm-hmm. you, when you add the context, then, then people can understand what it is. And then that kind of, you know, that need in one mom to tell another mom, you've got to see this, you've got to hear this. I can't say it myself, but listen to this video or whatever. Uh, that kind of thing starts to grow this thing. And I can tell you my own lived experience has been that if you just keep banging on it and try to stay, you know, clear and intelligent in what you're saying, the growth, the spread of the message comes. The biggest thing, and I tell people this a lot because I don't want people to give up. It feels like you're making no progress because progress takes longer than you think it does. Um, People have to hear about something 30, 40, 50 times before it's even on their radar at all. So, you know, just it sounds stupid. It's not magic. It's not manifesting the world we want to have. If you keep talking about an issue and making it clear, it actually does start to spread. It actually does start Mm -hmm. to get into people's cognition. More people get curious about what it is and more people get motivated to share it. So just if you want to get more parents in the know, don't get frustrated with how asleep everybody's been and that they're just starting to wake up realize that if you keep talking about it, more people are going to wake up and they're going to get more interested in it. And, you know, for every thousand people that get interested, you end up with somebody who's going to do amazing work like one of you all to really get more information and spread that information. And then then you're going to have an army of people that are going to be a big problem for this kind of a movement. They have operated by having a gigantic head start when nobody was looking. Right. And it's really important to remember that because we're we're undoing the amount of head start they've had very, very quickly. There's almost like That's the tortoise true. and the hare story sort of backwards or whatever, but like they've been asleep, like sitting there like, aha, I can't lose. We're so far ahead and we have caught up extraordinarily quickly. Um, that is true. The tipping and I, point and I, is probably not far off. I Yeah. And I think the other, the other thing that you're bringing up is that um, we, we also have to meet people where they are. And, you know, I do tell people that like, don't, don't yell at people or get mad at them because they're, you know, they're struggling to believe you because 
this we're talking about their kids and we're talking about a decision they made. They were that, you know, parents um, that, you know, they may have gone to the same schools. So they still think it's like it was when they were there or, you know, you don't want to believe that you're participating, you know, unwittingly in the abuse of your own children. Like, know that you're hardwired not to believe that. It's like, I don't want to hear this can't be true. So you're trying to break through some cognitive dissonance there and you have to approach it um, in a way that it has, you know, that's compassionate, that's patient. And then also you have to talk about core principles, you know, give the parent the benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, you want your child to be learning X, Y, Z, whatever. And then, you know, get them saying yes a bunch. Get them saying, yeah, uh, of course, that's what I want. Of course, that's what I want. It's like, okay, well, do you think this is working to do that? And then when you show them the concrete examples that you, you're, they're already with you. They're already with you in that space of, you know, I want what you want and we're all want the same thing. I, I think the constantly pointing at like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It doesn't, people just tune it out. So we have to, we have to talk about what education is supposed to be, what, you know, individuals, how individuals thrive and all those kinds of things. I would think at least as much to be taken seriously with this stuff. And, um, and I, and I think, we will make a lot of progress that way as well, because that that's where I've made progress. Whenever I approach parents that way, I get them actually listening and you give them that exit, you know, the, the sort of graceful exit from their former position, they're more likely to go with you. That's just what I've noticed. But um, I can't thank all of you guys enough, especially my, you know, the guests who dropped in James, Paul, um, everybody, Lisa, Adrian, this was a beast and we really didn't get into too much of the meat of it. I mean, you guys, it's like over 25 pages, right? And a lot of it sounds like the parts we read. So I'll put the link in the description box later. You guys can go read it if you want. It's on ResearchGate by Ben Williamson. Um, but it's, uh, I, I just think it's a great opportunity to see people putting it out there. Like, this is what we want. This is what we're going to do. And it's not a conspiracy if it's real, right, James? <laughs> I mean, it can be a conspiracy without being. I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory. theory if it's real. It's, yes, a, it's conspiracy. a conspiracy then. Right. Exactly. It's right. It's a real conspiracy. So um, where can, where should everybody go? I mean, well, let's do a quick round robin to find everybody. It's Lisa, where should people find you? Uh, Twitter at I am Lisa Logan and also on my YouTube channel, Parents of Patriots. Okay. And James is new discourses and conceptual James. Is that you on Twitter that's, these days? That's right. James, are you weaponizing your. <laughs> Am I weaponizing your mom still? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's weaponizing something at conceptual yeah, uh, it's, James. It's, yeah, it's weaponizing your mom at conceptual James and at new discourses. Right. And please, everyone, watch the Groomer School series. It, like, I, I've been pushing that to everybody. Like, please, please watch that. Um, listen to it, whatever. It, it, that is so incredibly important um, for people to understand. And Paul, unfortunately. Yeah, my wings are clipped, guys. I'm still suspended on, on the bird app. Um, working on it. There, are Some people came to can't, have, have sounded the trumpets and hopefully the cavalry is coming. So yeah. um, until I'm back, um, usually at Paul D. Rossi on Twitter, but please email me if you have any questions at teachingfortruth at protonmail.com. Great. 
And of course, we have Adrian at Shio Sophia YouTube channel and locals. Um, it's uh, shiosophia.locals.com. And when you want to get the breakdown on the latest study that's out there that people are saying, study says, take a look because Adrian's got the goods on that. Um, thank you all so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your evening. And I will uh, see you later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for coming. Bye. Thank Bye. You.